This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. Doug, Graham, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. Happy to be here. Happy to be here, Jason. We are talking about a recent survey from NASIO, the National Association of State CIOs, with, of course, state CIOs. And uh, I think it's always interesting because the interplay between federal and state CIOs is, and, and federal and state agencies really is, is growing, and you see a lot of overlap. And I think it's interesting to know what types of challenges, opportunities, progress states are making. So, Doug, let me just maybe start with you since you represent the association. When you looked at the results, what stood out to you? Discuss some of those results and, and discuss the survey. This is the 12th year of our uh, state CIO survey in partnership with uh, Grant Thornton and CompTIA, and we uh, survey all the state and territorial CIOs. We have 54 members, and uh, we craft a set of questions uh, each year uh, that goes out to all of those uh, state and territorial TIOs. Uh, For this particular iteration, we received 49 complete responses, which is pretty remarkable, uh, son of the second one during the pandemic. And so I I can imagine the focus of a lot of our early inquiries was around the response to the pandemic and what states were doing around COVID. We crafted these questions in the April-May of 2021 timeframe before we put it in the field. So we were optimistic in in some of our language around, you know, what do you expect in a post-COVID environment? And so that's the kind of the nature of many of our early questions. And that proved to to not to be uh, very prophetic because uh, within, you know, a few weeks of having the survey in the field, things started to really turn. Uh, with the Delta COVID variant. So we were kind of still in the middle of all of that and states were finding it, uh, you know, even challenging, uh, incredibly challenging to do that. So uh, that's the nature. We, we looked at you know, nine major topics uh, in our survey, which we can certainly highlight during our conversation today. But I think from the, you know, the overall nature, the theme of the survey, as, as Graham and I and the team looked at the results across the board in these various topics, was one of of accelerating digital services and just ex- the, the acceleration of a number of things, whether it was the introduction of new processes, uh, new technology solutions, uh, uh, speed speed to market kind of examples. That was, that was the theme that was consistent. We heard across the board from many of our CIOs that during the, this time period, technology became the front and center driver in a lot of states because of remote work. And so the CIO role particularly became uh, much more elevated. And you see that in our data that the CIO's perception of that is that their importance and role across the, across almost all of the states, universal was the fact that they did uh, have a more elevated uh, stature. And I think it's the evolution that I have seen. And now I'm on my 18th year uh, as executive director of NASIO, this evolution of, you know, that, kind of infrastructure, what I would call back office, boxes and wires, CIO to much more of the business leader of IT. And I think that's definitely reflective in in the comments, both the, uh, the empirical evidence from the survey, as well as the many quotes and comments that uh, the team got from oral. We did, we did interviews with, with uh, 20-some CIOs, as well as doing the formal survey. And that's, we capture a lot of the, you know, those thoughts and those uh, oral interviews as well. One of the things that I saw, and I just want to maybe pull that string a little bit, is is that the importance of CIOs and technology. It's always very interesting that 
that takes a pandemic, a, this emergency for people to go, oh, this technology thing's important. Did you get a sense when you talked to the CIOs why, beyond the fact that we all worked from home, beyond the fact that you couldn't open offices so citizens couldn't come get services, they had to do everything digital. Is it just that or is there something else happened or, or did they get a sense of, of why that change happened in the end? This is Graham. I, I can talk to that a little bit. And, and obviously it was significantly driven by those factors. You know, I think there's a, um, you know, there's a perspective I have on it that in a, in a weird way, for the last 18 months, the state CAO has been some strange amalgam of the Secretary of the Department of Transportation and the head of the Department of General Services and the Commissioner of the U.S. Postal Service because, you know, the, the traditional physical infrastructure, you know, the roads that people would travel to work, the offices that people would, would go to work in, you know, the mail delivery, all of that became virtual almost overnight, and the CIO was central to delivery of that, you know, both to state employees, as well as to all the citizens, you know, who now became, you know, so much more reliant. So it was a, you know, a major contributor, obviously, in accelerating. Um, and I think just making people recognize how foundational information technology is just to the functioning of society now. And the, the other thing I would say that was maybe a little bit different over the last year in particular Compared to the commercial sector, speed to market is not something that's often prioritized by the public sector, you know, just sort of speed as a virtue of its own. And that really changed. I mean, we saw the situations where, you know, by force of necessity, CIOs were having to facilitate the development and deployment of applications in a matter of days, if not weeks, right, instead of months and years. And that's a little bit new for a lot of a lot of them and so but but they achieved it and i think there was almost this recognition that things can happen really quickly when they need to you know and it's a little bit of a maybe a mental switch going off that you realize you can do things really quickly and it's almost reset the bar for what's possible which can be both good and bad because expectations are now also reset both on the citizen side as well as you know on the executive branch in terms of what is it actually possible and so the question you know we've had this big acceleration is it sustainable is probably one of the bigger questions we have. I think that's a great question. I think a lot of the, the federal CIOs are asking the same thing. Is it sustainable? So Graham, is it? I'll throw it to you. I mean, I think it is in the sense that there's nothing, you know, there were some, you know, emergency procurement authorities and things like that that were, you know, taken advantage of, you know, during the, the COVID emergency circumstances that are not going to be there you know, in, in the long term, and some, it's going to be back to some of the, you know, traditional processes. But a lot of what happened didn't necessarily rely on those. It was more just a recognition that, and this is both within the state employee workforce, as well as collaborating with the, the vendor community. And so we saw, um, you know, internal state IT teams fielding uh, applications very, very quickly. And, you know, those people are still there and those tools are still there. There's no reason why it can't be done, you know, as quickly going forward. There was also, I think, a real collaborative spirit with the vendor community where people were pulling all sorts of strings to try and do things quickly. And again, there's no reason why that can't continue. It's almost a matter of, you know, desire to do so and, and not letting ourselves fall back into sort of the old ways of doing things and the old set of expectations. You know, that said, by necessity, I think some of the traditionally sort of more bureaucratic processes around procurement and so on are going to put the brakes on certain types of certain larger transformations, uh, but a more granular scale, you know, doing things quickly is I think something we recognize can be done, you know, going forward. 
Yeah, Jason, uh, Graham brings up a good point. This is this is Doug, and I'll, I will comment that ex- one of the things he said, which I wrote on the highlights, very important, is that it can be done. And I think that's been, you know, now that they've kind of gone over that waterfall, it's like, well, you know, what's, why should we go back to the, the old models and we can accelerate this? And I think he mentioned another thing, which is very important to highlight, is that the vendor partners. And when you look at states that were expanding at the eight to 10 X within weeks so things like simple things like we had to send 50,000 employees home to work remotely. We had to then go, you know, from 5,000 VPN licenses to 50,000 VPN licenses because we had to secure the environment. They had to work with their, you know, their software vendors and their licensing situation. Many of them had to accelerate dramatically because of inbound traffic. You know, they had to, you know, manage uh, firewalls and they had to greatly increase their capacity and the surge. And, and again, the, their vendor partners really stood up. And I think it's reflective of this, this you know, long-term transition from that you know, that owner operator model where it's in the future is much more of the, the broker model and the CIO collaborating and partnering with uh, all the private sector solution providers. And that was evident in, in a lot of the conversations that, that had to take place, that it, you had to have that in order to succeed. The state wasn't going to be able to do it on their own. Both those items kind of came up during uh, conversations I've had with federal CIOs, the same collaboration piece, great story from the former transportation CIO about, you know, kind of getting involved and getting VPN license and others set up in, in weeks that you usually would take months. But I want to also go back to something that surprised me a little bit in the survey, which is the growth and recognition of low-code, no-code platforms. We hear a lot about it in the federal side, but but not so much that the agencies are using them, but they're just starting to look at them, that they they see value. What surprised you, maybe start with Doug, about that push towards low-code, no-code platforms and the acceptance of it among state CIOs? We've certainly seen it from previous studies about the use of low-code, no-code, but it was very nascent. It was predominantly in certain agencies, not in what I would call an enterprise platform or an enterprise imperative, it's not something that was promoted uh, widely by the state CIO at that enterprise level. I think, you know, clearly a number of things, uh, the speed, as we've already mentioned, the ability, there's a necessity of getting uh, those solutions to market. Uh, and there's some, you know, lots of great examples of things that had to be done. Oh, I point out things like vaccine registration and vaccine scheduling, right? Many states were using platforms that utilized uh, low code, no code to get those delivered. And, and governor said, we need to have this vaccine scheduling, once the vaccine was available, we need to have this up in five days. Well, that was that would have been unheard of. That would have been weeks, if not months. But again, they, they moved with their partners to do that. The, the vendor partners were bringing low-code, no-code solutions to the state saying, you've got this need to get this up. The states clearly have a challenge with workforce. You know, they, they, they don't have the, the uh, breadth of the workforce that they need. It's been challenged to hire technical uh, folks to get them to come into state government. So they may have, they have business analysts and other folks who understand the business process and they can say these people can then go ahead and try to use these tools and get them uh, trained on that. So it's a combination of just, you know, again, the crisis brings out a lot and it just happened to be one where uh, we saw this fairly dramatic increase to now where over 70% of the states. Uh, from our survey, we NASIO actually followed that up. We issued a, a low-code, no-code policy brief just to uh, a couple of months ago, uh, less than that, actually, where we kind of pulled the thread on that 
that whole topic because we were surprised at the, the how much that jumped up and the fact that the CIOs had uh, said, you know, in, in kind of their forecast over the next two to three years that low code, no code is going to kind of surpass AI and the AI stack is the most impactful emerging technology. And, and I think that's, that's probably uh, true given its adoption. Yeah, and this is, uh, this is Graham. I mean, I think uh, just a couple of points I'd add on to that would be Obviously, the op, you know the operating model across the states is it can be very different. Right? There's a very diverse set of roles and responsibilities that state CIOs have. You know, some of them are more centralized. A lot of them are very federated in terms of the you know the level of authority of the CIO, and most of them have some degree of responsibility for data center services and networks and so on. But it varies a lot in terms of how much they control or oversight over application development. You know, a lot of that in many states is really the responsibility of the departments. To Doug's point, you saw a lot of departments needing to stand things up quickly and, you know, going off and doing things very quickly using these tools, which, you know, not not to be unexpected. One thing I thought was interesting in the survey, we asked the CIOs how many of their states are starting to think more at a state level about low-code, no-code platforms. And it's about half of them, you know, so about half of the states are actually trying to do something at a state level. Either it's defining a set of standards or, you know, adopting, you know, preferred platforms, whatever it might be, um, but to try and do something to think at a statewide level about using these tools in a more coordinated manner and not just leaving it to the individual agencies. On that note, let's take a quick break. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. Today, we're talking about the NASIO survey of state CIOs. Graham, you bring up something that I want to maybe pull the string on too as well, is this idea of the role of the CIO. And I, I think Doug brought it up initially, which was the CIO is playing a much bigger role, much more you know, from the, from the back room to the boardroom type of role. Are we also starting to see that enterprise approach be, being taken by the state agencies on certain things like low code, no code, setting up the guardrails. Here's the platform you can use. Here's the security requirements around that platform. Is that also a trend that you're starting to see or that started to come out from the survey? I think to a certain extent, it's been a ongoing evolution. You know, over the last decade, I would say that you're, uh, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of states have had various degrees of state level enterprise-wide focus on, on a variety of different topics, you know, sort of whole of state cybersecurity, you know, perspectives, including going down to local government as well, like talking to sort of counties and cities as well. On the modernization front, you still tend to see the major modernization initiatives, other than, you know, maybe like a statewide ERP or something like that, generally to be driven out of the individual departments, just because the business systems, you know, are sort of focused there. But you're starting, I, mean, I think one, one topic that's really timely that addresses that state level perspective is identity and access management. You know, we saw a, a big focus on that, bigger than we've really seen in probably the last six or seven years around promoting that concept, both because, and this is, I think, a comment we sort of made around the survey, what we saw was really, the the term I am using, it's it's like two sides of a coin. On the one hand, you've got this real drive for uh, adoption of greater digital services and pushing them out to both citizens and employees and making that easier 
and more seamless. But on the other side, real concern about fraud. You know, and the easier you, you make it for people to get, uh, obtain access online, you know, potentially the greater the risk associated with, you know, fraudulent access. And we know that how many bad actors have been out there and continue to be. And so you put those two together and people, you know, states are really starting to look at state level identity and access management initiatives. And there's a small number of states, maybe a half dozen that have them pretty much in place already, but a lot more are starting to look at it. You know, and yet the, 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 probably the term, the two terms I heard more at the, the state CIO conference in Seattle, one was um, cloud smart, like that was sort of the term about, but the other one was zero trust, you know, and this idea is of identity and access management solutions that would, particularly with all of the federal funds that are flowing down to the states now, how do they address, you know, trust in that arena? And so that's an area I think you're going to see a lot of activity in the next year. So funny to hear cloud smart and zero trust at the uh, state local level, because th those have been, as Graham and Doug probably know well, you both know well that the feds have been talking about that for the last, you know, four, five, six, seven years now too. And now zero trust went from buzzword to actual initiative across the government because of the, of the cyber EO. I, I want to talk about both of those, but let me take a half a step back and go to identity and access management. When you look at the, the survey, when, when it comes to cybersecurity, when it comes to investments being made, about 83% said adoption, expansion of enterprise ID and access management solutions was one of the biggest impacts and, and that will receive more attention. Doug, what was it like previously? Was it all a bunch of one-offs? Was it less really focused on identity and access management, meaning just a lot of username and password at the state level? And now they're seeing because of, for instance, unemployment insurance fraud that the, that the Labor Department has been spending a lot of time trying to fix that they are saying, we need something stronger, we need something better. Talk to me about the trend. Yeah, so I mean, all all of all of the above, and as, as Graham said, so it's it's both the you know I kind of characterize it's both external citizen facing improving. The, so you can tie that to the responses around digital government and digital services. You know, the number one rationale of what, what what's motivating the states to invest more in digital services is improve the citizen experience, and and a huge part of that is identity and access management, having you know verification and insurance, having uh, the ability to access multiple state services with one digital credential. You don't have to have, a, again, a username and password or some credential for all these different silos in state government. And that's been the practice for years. So you see a number of states uh, that now have these enterprise solutions for doing that at various levels of assurance. And uh, some states have been doing part of that for several years. But now you see, I think, the tied to cybersecurity demands the proliferation of, of that taking place. So I say proliferation in that it's growing, but we still only have a couple of three states now that have that. We just recognized Ohio for their Ohio ID project. So that's a great example of a state that has deployed an enterprise-wide solution for all executive branch state agencies with multiple levels of assurance that citizens can use uh, where their identity is being verified with uh, other things like the Ohio driver's license and other credentials that you have to supply during that verification and proofing process. So they're rolling that out and saying, this is the one place you go. I see that being the future of the external side. And the internal side is, has been driven by cybersecurity and driven by the fact that the agencies you know, have been fairly federated or decentralized and now, and now the CIO is standing up identity as a service. So you have states, uh, many states, in fact, have gone down this path. And uh, Colorado is a good example of a state that has actually implemented uh, multi-factor authentication, MFA, uh, got a budget request and 
rolled out MFA for 33 or 34,000 state employees. Uh, so they're all using a consistent you know, MFA platform for internal security. Uh, the challenge around all of this for the states is the effective funding mechanism, number one, to as a capital expense to get the project underway and implemented, but then how do you sustain it? It can't come out of the CIO office all the time. Maybe their initiative, but there's got to be some kind of sustained funding. Uh, you've got to have that, particularly on the internal side, you have to have that initial capital. So some states have been successful in making a capital budget request to say, we need you know, X number of millions just to get this going. Uh, and it could be identity as a service, uh, as a chargeback to the agencies. The overall majority of the state CIOs operate chargeback organizations where they're billing the agencies for services. So that's kind of discrete service that they can put into their, their desktop uh, service catalog and say, you know, as part of this, you're going to get uh, you know, we're going to get an MFA token or we're going to have something involved. So uh, it's going to take time, but I think the definitely from a security standpoint, it's obvious that, that they need to move in this direction. And we're hearing a lot of that from our CIOs and from our chief security officers that, that that's their intention. That's their aspiration. And you saw that in the survey is surprised me a little bit that it was number one. But I think, you know, the fraud, as Graham mentioned, I think the fraud during the uh, the pandemic has highlighted the need to be able to, um, you know, identify that. And that actually relates to another one of our award recipients was uh, State of Georgia and the Department of Labor, one of our award recipients for their identity verification solution for unemployment uh, process processing recipients, which again, we saw, you know, dramatic levels, unprecedented levels of fraud during the pandemic with, the, uh, with, the, with those benefits. I really appreciate the fact you're highlighting some of these use cases, whether it's Georgia or Ohio, whomever. And in fact, I actually did an interview recently with the Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor, talking to them about how they're working with states to improve that unemployment insurance systems. And, and identity is, is the first piece to that solution, too, the, the first module they call it rolling out. So I agree that there is a, is a big push for that. On that note, let's take a quick break. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. Today, we're talking about the NACIO survey of state CIOs. Graham, let's continue down the path of cybersecurity. I think this is an important discussion, too. There, there's several things that, that came out of the survey around cybersecurity. Uh, identity and access management was one of them. Enterprise cybersecurity assessments. What stood out to you about the survey? Was there anything that, that surprised you uh, about the results or anything that, that really was maybe took you by a wow factor? I wouldn't say wow factor around cyber, at least. I think there's a continuing, I think, evolution around this concept of cybersecurity as a public good for the states. I mean, as Doug mentioned, almost all, not all, but most of the state CIOs operate primarily on a you know, fee-for-service, a chargeback mechanism, which I think is you know, somewhat different to a lot of federal, federal CIOs. And, you know, there are there are advantages and disadvantages to that model. And one area where it's been something with disadvantages is something like cybersecurity, where if you're you know, charging a fee for things that are ultimately a public good for everybody, it's not really an incentive to adopt. 
And a lot of CIOs have been pushing to try and have more of their cyber activities funded through the general fund. You know, it was more of an allocation rather than having to be stuck in chargeback. And I think we're seeing some migration towards that, you know, and, and more success there, which I think is going to be good for everybody. And just sort of recognizing that, you know, regardless of whether it's, you know, the, the cybersecurity activities in another state agency benefit you. Uh, if you know, re- regardless of, of who you are, and we're, we're seeing more of that. So I think that's sort of a positive evolution. But you know, when, whenever we see these cyber service money is always money and talent are always the two biggest issues, and that's not going away. This is Doug. Uh, Jason uh, Graham brings up a great point about the incentive, which we've seen shift. Certainly, I have in the last few years, where you go back five or ten years, and state CIO organizations and I know many of them, they, they had the service, they had, for example, multi-factor authentication as a service that they could deliver to their state agencies, but it wasn't mandatory. It was, they weren't compelled to use it. It was discretionary. It said, well, you know, you, you, we've got this opportunity. It would be, you know, we would strongly suggest you take advantage of this. That's, you know, X dollars a month for all your employees or for your key system admins. You know, we, we, we strongly suggest that you do this. And the agency could say, well, no, not so much. You know, we don't want to spend any more money with you and we're good. And then there would be, you know, a major incident, right? A, a malware attack, a theft of data, uh, and have to come to, you know, an event before they back up. Now we're seeing more and more states uh, simply say, this is not, as, as Graham said, this is not optional. This is a public good. We're going to require uh, that all of our, and any, any, any end user kind of beginning of the zero trust, because we do have some states that are beginning to implement zero trust. And one of the first things they're doing is going to the human side and saying, okay, everyone that accesses the network must do this. And then we're going to get to devices and everything else. So it's just changing. And part of it is getting the funding uh, to do that uh, because they don't want to have extraordinary charges. And then I hear the wrath from their customers about that, but it's, it's, it's necessary. It really is. So I think you look at the data from the survey, we had about 20% of the states that they had an incident related to cyber incident during the pandemic. And ransomware continues to be their major concern from a continuity of government threat, yet none of the states had a ransomware incident. In fact, states have been very, very immune from those. I mean, knock on wood that uh, you know, local governments and K through 12 and healthcare institutions, they're all the groups that have had all of the ransomware attacks. The states have only had a couple in the last five years. So the states have been uh, very, uh, I think, diligent and, and vigilant about trying to keep their environment. It's not to say that it can't happen, but uh, that's, that, that's one thing they understand is that they've got to, uh, to really keep, uh, keep the castle protected um, because of the level of threats that happen every single day. I was actually going to bring up that piece about ransomware because I think that's maybe the other piece that's driving this understanding, if you will, about where this need for this enterprise cyber, that between the supply chain concerns, whether it's, it's supply chain as in we can't get the technology we need or we can't get the things we need, or the supply chain from the perspective of are we buying software that's secure? Or are we worried about backdoors? And then when you add on top of that, the solar winds hack. And then alternatively, the agencies that, as Graham said at one time, said, eh, I'm not sure I'm interested. Now we're like, uh-oh, I better be interested. Did that come out during your conversations with those 20 CIOs? I'll open up to Doug or Graham. I don't recall, Doug. I don't recall that specifically, but again, it, it has been kind of an evolution. It takes a while because the states, you know, all operate differently. Some are highly centralized and have the, the CIO has the 
both the uh, statutory authority and that they have the ability, they have the capabilities internally to move in that direction and, and others don't. They may be uh, more federated. We don't have a, you know, a, a, for a time we had states that were completely decentralized. The CIO organization uh, may have provided some services, but the agencies all operated their own little kingdoms within those lines of business. And that has certainly shifted. We really don't have a, a fully decentralized uh, organizational model anymore. We have kind of hybrid pieces of that, but it's been consistently moving in the direction where uh, they have more authority. But cybersecurity, you know, I've always said cybersecurity is the, is the business issue that you ignore at your peril, right? The other ones, you know, you can get, you can probably let the, kick the can down the road. We've certainly seen that with legacy and, and, and modernization. They, just like the federal government, they've been kicking the can down the road for a while. Cybersecurity is one that you you cannot, and I think it reflected in the survey comments, but also over time, we've seen the elevation, at least, and this is certainly what I advocate, is cybersecurity is a business risk to government. So stop talking about it in terms of technology. It's a business risk. So now we're getting you know more elevated thinking with governors and other elected officials, uh, legislators and appropriators uh, are thinking more about the importance of cyber. I'm doing two events in the next month. Uh, both of them are elected officials asking about uh, what can we do about cybersecurity? And so they, you know, they don't want to be on the front page uh, of the paper. So I think this is just a, a continuing evolution of the, of the environment and the understanding that there's no going back, so to speak, is that this is life in the digital age and cybersecurity is just something that you have to invest in. And Graham mentioned it. It's 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 the people and in, in, uh, in funding, right? It's the that's the thing we've seen consistently for years. Is the, in the state level anyway, the funding is not commensurate to the risk uh, that's being approached. And I think it's finally that is kind of bubbled up finally to uh, to elected officials when they see the you know, dramatic impact of both in terms of the potential cost to mitigate, but also the reputational impact and the trust factor that has been broken once you, you know, have got to tell all your citizens that all their data has been stolen or, you know, some, they have some major failure of a, of, a, uh, of a system that you can't transact business with the state now because it's been attacked. So all those things just have to be resolved and it's going to take more states just uh, have in the past have not been really organized to succeed. And I think they're really getting to a much better, uh, much better situation today. On that note, let's take a quick break. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. Today, we're talking about the NACIO survey of state CIOs. I want to shift over to the discussion around legacy modernization, because this is all kind of tied together. And Graham, you mentioned the more discussion around cloud smart, zero trust, obviously, we talked about earlier. But what were some of the things that came out from the survey around legacy modernization? We know there's been a big push for digital services as well. What stood out to you? What from the survey really thought that that you were kind of, again, either surprised by or just kind of was, was something that resonated with you? The thing that the pandemic did was stress test almost to destruction a number of these legacy systems. And so it's not that any, any of this was really news 
you know, people knew that there's, there's all of these old assets that need to be modernized and they've been in people's plans for a long time. I think what the pandemic highlighted was, especially with the migration towards, you know, 100% virtual services and pushing so much more um, access online and then just the volumes associate. I mean, UI is sort of the poster child for it, but there's others too, that something needed to be done. You know, it, it created a burning platform, if you like. And so it's accelerated activity. And then, you know, the federal funding that's, you know, coming in is going to support some of that too. So I think you're, you're seeing an acceleration. It's not necessarily new things that people weren't planning to do that are now being planned, but it's more of an acceleration of things that people knew they needed to do. And now there's a little bit more urgency to get them done. But of course, at this level, you know, sort of scalar transformation, fast is not weeks or even months still. These are sort of long-term, large-scale projects. But I think there is more of a, you know, a, a general intention um, across the states. And I think actually the, you know, to a certain extent, the federal government's been a little bit ahead of this in certain areas of trying to break down um, large modernization programs into smaller discrete elements and, you know, use agile techniques and in incremental software development and so on. So that's all part of the story. Um, but we are seeing, I think, a, you know, a, an acceleration of these modernization plans. Do you get a sense that the use of DevSecOps and Agile and the like, is that catching on at the state level? Because we, we hear a lot of talk about it at the federal level, but there's always concern that it's DevSecOps skin on top of a waterfall you know, a process. A lot of that same thought process. Yeah. So you're seeing, I'd say some early adopter organizations that are focusing on, you know, deploying technologies using exactly those kinds of tools and techniques, but it's as much as anything, it's a cultural change in terms of how you think about software development and it impacts the entire, you know, the entire life cycle of a program from how you think about budgeting to legislative oversight you know, to project management, to, to, you know, interaction with the users and so on. And so it's a, it's a really, it is a, it's a, I hate to use this sort of word paradigm, but it is sort of a paradigm shift in how you think about building these systems. And so you, you're seeing people start to do that and break these, you know, large scale modernization problems down into smaller increments, attack them using agile methods, using, you know, DevSecOps and so on. But a lot of it is brand new. You know, and I think the, the early adopters in many cases are still in process, you know, so I think they're, they're sort of showing the way, if you like, but it's still early days. You know, we're seeing, a, a, I think, a, a much stronger uptake around agile and incremental software development in general. It's a pretty much a common practice, you know, across most of the states these days, but not necessarily at scale for those really large modernization efforts. And that I think where we're seeing a little bit of the, you know, the exploration right now. Doug, one piece of the thing that the, the survey that, that stood out to me was when you talk about the biggest drivers of expanding digital services, they were talking about better online citizen experience for citizens. 74% said that was the biggest driver. Again, with the pandemic, not surprising, but was there, has there been a kind of a shift in mentality, a shift in view to put that user, to put the citizen at the center of these efforts? Has that, was that something that the pandemic, again, created or is it kind of brought to the top and that was kind of building up over the last three, four, five, six years? It didn't create it, Jason, but it's certainly uh, highlighted just as Graham mentioned. I mean, I've used the word exposed. So, you know, the pandemic exposed the fact that, you know, we had the technical debt and all of these legacy platforms. Many of them were, were on, the, in, on the board for modernization, but again, they're looking at several years out, right? They did propose to do that 
The same thing with digital services. So you know, all the states were talking about improving their digital services interface, you know, creating uh, mass personalization, uh, using personas, having focus groups, you know, obviously moving to more mobile, moving to more, uh, they all have .gov portals and they're trying to say, well, how can we uh, have a single door to all of these services? You know, the, again, the, the common complaint that you hear is from the user side, from citizens, is you have to understand the organizational chart of state government to navigate that pirate map to get to the services. And you shouldn't have to do that. You should have an intention base. You should have to, I want to do X. I want to renew my driver's license. You shouldn't have to know because that is quite frankly different in many states about what organization uh, is responsible for that. So you shouldn't have to know that. You should say, I, I want to do this function. And so I think that's what happened was during the, the pandemic, all of that was exposed about how difficult it is to navigate, how difficult it is to understand. Citizens were, were frustrated. They were put in the queue. And that really resulted in uh, states you know, trying to streamline all of that. Uh, and we saw the, again, a pretty dramatic uh, rise in the use of chatbots and virtual agents on websites. We had done uh, a diff an additional, we had done another survey in 2019 where less than a quarter of the states indicated they were using chatbots at all. They, that was something that was, quite frankly, resisted by many state agencies because they felt it was too impersonal, even though it's been used in the private sector for years. They didn't like the fact that citizens might be interacting with a virtual agent, working, interacting with a bot on their website. Well, it's amazing how quickly they switched because then we went from quarter to almost 80%. Look at, I think we had in the survey, it was you know, 75 or something percent of our respondents said they were deploying chatbots. So they saw that as part of that improving digital experience that we can't you know, conduct your transaction right away. We can answer a lot of questions. So uh, almost all of the unemployment claim sites, almost the, the UI processing tried to move within, and some of them did it in a, within a week. They put up a, a, a chatbot with machine learning uh, capabilities and lots of, uh, you know, a complete database of uh, knowledge services that they could they could tie into. So I think these things were all bubbling, but I think, again, the pandemic simply exposed both the immaturity, but also the fragility of all of these things. And so I, I, I just don't see the states going back. They're all, you know, that, that, that's going to be a very high priority is, is how do we improve digital services? How do we get more transactions? And many states were already, you know, states like Utah, I think had over 1200 online services before the pandemic. So they weathered a lot of that because people, they didn't, you didn't have to go to a physical location, a brick and mortar location to do X. They already had it they already had it online and they already had a huge payment processing engine. So I think that's going to be the next step is how do we get more of that? The consumer, the, the citizen as consumer experience is very different. They, as consumers, they've become more accustomed to that. Many citizens just didn't do a lot of digital you know, services. They didn't do electronic transactions with their state. And now they were forced to do it and they found it to be, you know, unwielded. They found it to be complex. It was cumbersome. It was convoluted. No one could answer their questions. So as these things were all exposed, I think it elevated up and the governors were hearing, you know, hearing that loud and clear that uh, this stuff, you know, is not good and it doesn't mimic my experience as an online consumer. So you better fix it. The, the chat bots and, and the like is always very interesting as a user, as a consumer, 
I'm not a big fan of them, but I guess people have some simple questions like, where am I in, in the in the queue? What's the status of my payment? It's an easy way to kind of get answers quickly versus having to wait on the phone for, is what we saw, hours on end to try to get people to answer and, and to talk to a, a person. No, I have to say that is true. I, I think this is the one area we're going to probably spend a lot of time talking about this. If you, if you look at the last 20 years, this is the one area I have a passion for this. This is when I was my term in, in state government, I spent a lot of time trying to, to move agencies along. But this is the one area that has not delivered on the promise uh, that has been talked about for years. NASIO's call for digital government, we put out a call to action in 2001. I still have a artifact hard copy of that in my office if I ever go back there. So it's uh, it, that, that's interesting is we, we put out a series of principles that you know, states need to do this. And quite frankly, that's the area that they probably have uh, under-delivered on in the last 20 years is improving the experience and moving uh, states to a digital uh, capability. And there's just, you know, part of that is just uh, a huge cultural resistance to change. Uh, you know, and part of it is obviously, you know, funding and leadership and authority. And, and I think that's what the state CIO struggle with is that enterprise authority, because compare, you know, to the federal government, the CIO of, the, of a state an executive branch, they, they are over all of the agencies, unlike the, you know, like the federal CIOs that are individually in their agencies and have that authority, you know, they're not dealing with the complexity of all of the lines of business with all different mission spaces. And how do you, you know, kind of bring that together for that kind of common vision. Uh, so it, it's a heavy lift. It takes a lot of uh, effort to be able to get that. And this is the one area that is very common to all those lines of business is how do we deliver digital services to our citizens better and the pandemic simply really exposed the, the fact that it was disjointed and still needs to be uh, elevated in terms of the policy discussion. Gentlemen, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. We're just about out of time before I let you go. What do you think federal agency leaders and, and from your perspective, contractors, what are some of the biggest takeaways? What can they learn from the survey? Graham, start us off. So, I mean, I, the big thing for me is just this concept of speed and that how quickly things can be done. And the other thing that, and I don't know how much of a, you know, a contrast this is between the state and, and federal CIO organizations. One of the things that we've seen at the state level is the establishment of these tiger teams that are 100% state employees who are really driving a lot of this innovation. You know, and they are fielding applications and they're producing solutions very, very quickly and they're doing it all organically. All right, gentlemen, I've really much enjoyed our conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guests. Doug Robinson is the executive director of the National Association of State CIOs. Doug, so good to catch up again. Thanks for taking the time. And Graham Finley is the principal with Grant Thornton Public Sector. Graham, thank you as well for taking the time. No, thanks, Jason. It was great. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. SMS text, 1118 AM. Hey girl, emergency. You wouldn't believe what just happened. Are you at your desk? I ripped my skirt and like half my tush is hanging out. Third floor bathroom, please help. LOL. 
When you send messages on SMS, someone else could be reading them. With end-to-end -end encryption, WhatsApp ensures that your personal messages are your personal messages. WhatsApp. Always message privately.